A reading from Mark, chapter 11, verse 1 through 25. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told him what Jesus had said, and they let him go. And they brought the colt to Jesus, and drew their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before, and those who were followed, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already laid, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and a leaf and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold overturned to soul pities, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house should be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all of the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when the evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, Believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father, who also is in heaven, may forgive your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. So tonight we're resuming our series in the Gospel of Mark, and we come to chapter 11, which is the beginning of the last section of Mark's Gospel. Mark's Gospel is, is broken up basically into three sections. Chapter 1 through the middle of chapter 8 is really his public ministry in Galilee, where he wanders throughout the, the, the region of Galilee and preaches the good news of the kingdom and shows the power of the kingdom in all kinds of people's lives. And in the middle section, halfway through chapter 8, through chapter 10, Jesus then sets his, his sights on Jerusalem. And he and his disciples begin their journey 
And here in chapter 11, he has arrived in Jerusalem. And chapter 11 begins to set the stage for what would result in his death on the cross in just a few short days, actually. And it's important to note as we come to this chapter or this section that a central theme is the temple. The temple is in the Old Testament and throughout the Bible, it is the place where God meets with his people. It is the way in which God set things up throughout the Old Testament so that he, a holy and perfect and righteous God, could meet with his people who are sinful and disobedient and rebellious. It was in the temple where heaven and earth overlapped, if you will. And so Jesus comes, and the very first place he goes to is the temple. It was the place where God met with his people. If we could uh, put it like this, it was intended to be a picture of the gospel. A picture of the good news. Of how it would be, how it would be possible that God could have a relationship with us, be reconciled to us. And so that's how we read all of these sacrifices and all of the provisions that the temple enabled us to have. In other words, it was a picture of what we might call a gospel-centered community. That's what the temple meant to communicate. But not only was the temple the place where God meets with his people and is reconciled and their relationship is restored, it's also, as we've seen throughout Mark's gospel, it was the seat of religious authority. And time and again in Mark's gospel, we've seen the conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders. So much so that the message and the ministry of Jesus is, is in fact, in direct opposition with the religious leaders of the day. And so, as he enters into Jerusalem, it's worth asking the question, what would he think about this place? What would he see? And what would he do about it? And I think to get us into this passage, I want to begin by just pointing to these these two sections in this um, 25 verses that we're looking at about the fig tree. What is this bit about the fig tree? If you look in verse 12 through 14, and then uh, we'll mention uh, in verse 20 and 21 a bit later, but in all, in Matthew and Luke, they also have this section about the fig tree uh, right around Jesus' entrance into the temple. But Mark is the only one who separates it, and he sandwiches, if you will, Jesus' entrance into the temple where he cleanses the temple. He drives out the money changers and, and uh, indicts the temple. And he sandwiches the temple with this bit about the fig tree. What is this whole fig tree thing about? Let me, let me try to explain it to you and then I'll tell you why or what this teaches us and how we need to apply it to our own situation as a church here and today. This fig tree, Jesus, uh, he's, he's entered into Jerusalem and they're on the way into uh, Jerusalem. He sees a fig tree. He's hungry. In verse 13 it says, Seen in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, 
He found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And then this is what causes many difficulty, he says in verse 14. May no one ever eat from you again. Let me try to explain to you what's going on, because understanding what happens here really does set the the agenda for Jesus in this section. And also really is what sets the, the, the stage for everything that follows through to the end of Mark's gospel. Uh, What we have here is essentially Jesus sees a fig tree and it's in full leaf. It's the springtime. But he comes to it and he doesn't see any figs on it. And Mark actually tells us straight out it wasn't the season for figs. So what's what's happening? The life cycle of the fig tree goes something like this in the ancient Near East. That the season for figs is in the summer. And by early fall, September, October, the tree is, is, the figs are gone and there are, there actually, it loses its leaves. And sometime in, in mid to late fall, it begins to sprout these buds that by the summertime will be full-blown figs, but it has no leaves on it yet. And those, those buds that begin to grow in mid to late fall uh, grow slowly over the winter. And then sometime in the early part of the spring, they, it begins to, sometime in April, usually, the fig tree will begin to sprout leaves. And here, what is happening is that the tree, a fig tree will already have these little buds that will then mature into figs throughout the winter and even into the spring. But they're, they're, they're small, you can eat them, but they're, they're not full-blown figs. And yet, it will grow leaves, and the sign of the leaves, if you see a fig tree, is, oh, well then there most definitely must be fruit on this tree that I could eat. Even before it's a season for figs. And that's where Jesus finds himself. He sees this fig tree. And it, from a distance, has all of the indicators and signs that it's a tree that's healthy and that has fruit on it. Even before it's the season for figs to uh, pick them and eat them as a mature fig. So why does Jesus, why why does Mark include this story? This is a parable. It's a story that Jesus is here using to to tell a parable about the temple. Here's basically the point that Mark is trying to communicate to us by including it here in the story. That here we have, it's a tree with the signs of fruit. But as Jesus comes to see it close up, there is no fruit on it. It's a judgment on the temple. It's as if, as one commentator writes, Jesus is dramatizing the end of the temple by a parable. The leafy fig tree, with all its promise of fruit, is as deceptive as the temple, which despite all of its religious fervor and activity, has lost its way. The curse of the fig tree is a symbol of God's judgment on the temple. So you see, this episode here of the fig tree is Jesus' way of telling us that the way in which the place that we were most supposed to see God meet with his people, with all of its grandeur and all of its sacrifices and all of its religious fervor, is really lifeless. It's lost its way. There's no spiritual life left in it. 
And it's an incredible indictment that Jesus is giving here as he enters into Jerusalem. And I think the question for us is, how does a church like Red Mountain not suffer the same thing? How does any Christian church not become a place that, from the outside, looks like it's very leafy and vibrant and alive, only to get in the inside and discover there's no fruit, there's no nourishment, there's no life. It's utterly deceptive. And I think in this passage, Jesus teaches us at least three things about how to both remain and to become a gospel-centered community. We need to receive the king that God sent. We need to embrace God's mission to the world. And we need to look in faith to the new temple. So first, we need to receive the king that God sent. Verses 1 through 11 is is this story, the, the, the part about Jesus entering into Jerusalem. And everything about the Christian faith hangs on understanding who Jesus is. And again and again, we see ways in which Mark tries to communicate that to us, and this is one of them. Where Jesus enters into Jerusalem, and he does so in a way that would be fitting to the time. Where kings would enter into their home city after a successful military campaign on a horse with their military following them and their dignitaries alongside, announcing their successful return and triumph. And yet Jesus departs from that here. He departs from that common way that a king would enter into his home city, hailed by those who see him returning successfully. And instead he here enters in on a cult. Again and again we see Jesus has made preparations for this cult and sends his disciples to go get this cult on the outskirts of Jerusalem and he sits on it and begins to ride and people throw down their cloaks and their jackets and even the branches and he enters in and approaches towards Jerusalem all of which Jesus intends for us to see in the way in which he chooses to enter Jerusalem a direct connection to what was foretold about the coming king Back in Zechariah chapter 9. Listen to what we read in Zechariah chapter 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. Here Jesus again, begins to challenge all the categories that we ever thought we knew about power and authority. Not only just humanly speaking, but when it comes to God himself. And in particular, here, Jesus, there is a juxtaposition, a paradox even, where Jesus is described as the coming king who's humble. We've seen this again already, where Jesus has been described as a suffering king And here, we could say that Jesus brings together dimensions about who God is that boggle the mind. So, for example, what we see here is Jesus, he's infinite, his infinite majesty, and yet he's completely humble. 
He's perfectly just and yet has boundless grace. That he's all sufficient in himself and yet he entirely trusts in and depends on God as Father. That Jesus' identity, he's utterly unique. And it's this identity that gives way to his mission. That he is a humble king who enters into God's city on a donkey to literally turn everything upside down. When he walks into the temple and begins to overturn the tables, Jesus has come to turn everything upside down, to challenge everything we ever thought it meant to have a relationship with God. But not just to be a spectacle, but actually to show to us what is God's mission in the world. Jesus has come to open the way to God for all people, whether Jew or Gentile, whether religious or irreligious. And that's what we're called to embrace. Let's see how he teaches us how to, what this mission actually is, that we must embrace if we're going to receive this king, which we must. What does it look like to embrace this mission? Jesus, in verses 15 through 19, he's outraged as he enters into the, to the temple in Jerusalem. Mark tells us he enters in and he drives out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the state of the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Now, a little bit you need to know, again, a good picture of this would be to imagine, you know, when you see on TV pictures of the New York Stock Exchange and little pieces of paper flying all over the place and it looks like total chaos. Well, imagine that, just add in livestock. That would be the temple, all right? And the place that this happened was in a, in a place that was called the Court of the Gentiles. It was the largest area in the temple. And it was the place that non-Jews were welcomed and invited into to come and to pray and to worship God. But what has happened here is that very place that God had made provision for, for those who were not Jews, but who were Gentiles, to still be in his house, had been turned into a mall, a marketplace to buy and to sell items for for especially the Passover, which was right around the corner in our story here. Buying and selling all these various items and it took place in the court of the Gentiles. Now what this meant was, among a number of things, that the religious leaders of Jesus' day had lost sight of what the temple was for. They had lost sight of God's mission, which you could go back into Genesis chapter 12, and again and again what you see is God's people were called to be a blessing to the nations. That mission had been lost so much so that the popular expectation of Jesus' day was went something like this, that when the Messiah came, his job would be to purge Jerusalem and the temple of all the Gentiles, all the aliens, all the foreigners, all the non-Jewish people. But notice what Jesus does. He does the exact opposite of that. He enters in, and in verse 17, he 
he was teaching them and he says, is it not written that my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? Mark is the only one who includes that bit about for all the nations. Matthew and Luke both quote from the same passage in Isaiah 56, which we read earlier. But Mark includes the extra bit in Isaiah 56 for all the nations. That here Jesus is reminding us and showing us what is the mission of the church? What is the mission of God's gathered people? It is to be a blessing to the nations. We are to be a place where those least like us would find access and a welcome and an invitation to see and discover who this God is, this God of grace and mercy for all peoples who would come to him. And so I think we need to ask, how would we apply this to to ourselves? At the very least, I think what we need to see What Jesus is teaching us here is that we as a church, Red Mountain Church, we do not exist and cannot exist simply for our own sake. But that we exist not only for our own sake, but for our neighbors, for our friends, for our city, even for the nations. How can we have that kind of church? What do we need in order to grow more into that kind of church? We need to see here in verse 18, what's the reaction to Jesus as he enters in and begins to overturn everything? The chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him. This is the beginning of the end, if you will. The cost of this kind of mission would cost nothing less than the very death of the Son of God. Now, if you think about it for a moment, the very fact that you and I here in Birmingham in 2016 are gathered and speaking and hearing and listening and singing about this message means that Jesus paid the cost for you and for me to know this message. How do we become the kind of church that resembles Jesus' mission to the nations is the cross. As we remember the cross and what it cost him in order that we might hear this good news, that's where we find the resources to begin to grow in and love and work for this same mission that Jesus is indicting the temple during his day for. You see, the symbolism here, again, of the fig tree comes up in verse 20. As they leave the temple again and they're headed back out, and they're now returning again, Peter sees this fig tree, and it had been withered to its roots. See, here's the point. That Jesus, what he's telling us through this story is that the place that everyone used to go to to meet with God is spiritually dead. It's withered to its roots. We need a new temple. It's being replaced. The Messiah has come, and Jesus is now that new temple. And that may seem very odd 
until we remember, again, what's the purpose of the temple? The purpose of the temple was, it was the place where heaven and earth overlapped. And it was always looking forward to that day when God wouldn't just have a temple of sacrifices and priests, but that he would come and dwell himself with his people. And on the cross, we see this happen. Jesus, and we'll come to this in a few chapters, but in chapter 15, as Jesus is hanging on the cross, this is what we read. Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. What that means is the death of Jesus once and for all does away with all of what the temple intended and was meant to do. It was utterly inadequate to give us the access that we really need, the assurance that you really need. And Jesus has opened up all of the free access that we most need and could never get on our own. Jesus is now where heaven and earth overlap. The Son of God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. See, this is the gospel. He has removed all of the barriers of access to God for anyone who trusts in Him. That means all of the sin that you see in your life, all of the sin that you see in your past, Perhaps even the sin that you carry with you that has been committed against you. The cross of Jesus Christ tells you there are no more barriers. There is cleansing. There is forgiveness. There is worthiness freely given. There are no more sacrifices to make. The one sacrifice has been made and this radically changes what it means to be, as to borrow from Jesus, a house of prayer for all nations. What does it look like then for us to be a church that grasps that good news? Notice what Jesus says here in response to Peter. He says in verse 22, have faith in God. If you wanted to know what is the one thing that Jesus invites you to in light of what he has done, it's not to get busy. It's not to work up your religious fervor, to show God your worthiness. No, it's to have faith in God. To take all of your trust in yourself and see it for what it really is, is as a shame. And to put all of your trust in God. And notice what he says. He, he follows with this encouragement even. To have faith in God. With verses 23-25 which are all about prayer. What does faith look like? What's faith in action at its most basic level? It is a prayer life that's both confident and humble. Look what he says in verse 23. Truly I say to you, whoever says to the mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, 
Whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Now, there are lots of theologies that have come out of these kinds of verses in the New Testament that basically go something like this. They're what we might call a name it and claim it theology. And they're incredibly dangerous because this is what they basically teach you. If you just had more faith, God would give you what you most want. Now, here's the problem. Who is the one person in the Bible who had perfect faith in God? Jesus. In Mark chapter 14, Jesus, on the night before he was betrayed, the night he was betrayed, he says, Father, if there is another way, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, your will be done. So there is no way what Mark is saying here means if you just had more faith and God would really give you what you most want. Because we essentially be saying, well, Jesus didn't have faith. If Jesus just had more faith, then he wouldn't have had to go to the cross. But Jesus, the one who trusted, <coughs> prays and asks and doesn't get what he most wanted. So what's going on here? When we look at the scriptures as a whole, what Mark is teaching us here is and what Jesus is teaching us is prayer, that is faith-filled prayer, doesn't look at our faith. It looks at the one in whom you've put your faith, the object of your faith. Jesus is the example, the one who shows us what does it look like to entrust yourself to God and to know because of who he is, the object of your faith, you can entrust to him your very life and ask him for the very things that you most want and know that however he answers it, it will be both for his glory and for your good. You see, there's great confidence that comes in prayer when we realize and focus on and trust in the one we're praying to. For example, let me put it to you like this. There's a, an illustration I think that may be of help here. One writer describes biblical faith like this, that biblical faith can be illustrated by considering the faith we would need when about to drive a vehicle across a rickety-looking bridge. We would not ask, have I got enough faith? Rather, the appropriate question is, can this bridge take the load of the truck? Once we can answer in the affirmative, the question about faith vanishes. See, faith is just there because of what we perceive about its object. When faith is lacking, the antidote is not introspective self-examination, but rather contemplation, looking to the object of Jesus the Lord, our sufficient Savior. So this faith that Jesus is calling us to as a church that is characterized by this mission for the nations is confident, but it's also humble. Because he says in verse 25, whenever you stand praying, forgive. 
If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. See, humility in prayer, it's at the very heart of what prayer is. Forgiveness in prayer is the foundation of prayer because it Prayer, forgiveness in prayer is how you remember how needy you really are. It's forgiveness, God's forgiveness of you that gives you the assurance, the confidence that you need in prayer. And it's when for God's forgiveness of you lays hold of your heart that it becomes absolutely both necessary and even natural for you to see other people who have wronged you and to extend them that same forgiveness. That true faith, it's both confident, but it's also humble. And this is all a part of what Jesus is trying to teach us about his arrival in Jerusalem and in the very heart of the place where God has met with his people. It's a sobering passage, but it's also, I hope, very helpful to you. And that's always a sign of the gospel work in your life. So how do we, as a church like Red Mountain, how do we not lose sight of God's mission, not only to us, but through us, to our friends and our neighbors, our city, even to the nations? We need to receive this king. We need to embrace his costly mission. And we need to look in faith to Jesus, the new temple, the one through whom we have free access and an unending, perfect relationship with our Father in heaven. Let's pray.